back to the Craft and Career podcast series featuring conversations with professional creatives from the arts, entertainment, and media industries. Here we explore various approaches to craft and career and even consider how those two can sometimes work together. I'm Derek Webster, Senior Associate Director for Creative Careers at Yale's Office of Career Strategy, and I'm excited to introduce our next guest, Lisa Carezzi, photographer, faculty member, director of undergraduate studies, as well as alumna of the Yale School of Art. Lisa's work can be found in collections across the country, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Whitney Museum of Contemporary Art, and the Getty Museum, to name only a few. An artist, an educator, and a great collaborator for our office, Lisa, it is a privilege to welcome you to the Craft and Career Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, and and a, a great chance to catch up, too. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure to work with you here at Yale. Our podcast is called Craft and Career. That's usually, sometimes that's a stopper for people. It's sort of like, what do you mean by craft? And what do you mean by career? Particularly craft, right? Like it can mean in the art space, it can mean a lot of things and not everyone owns that or, or really feels like, you know, drawn to it. So let's start with that. Let's start with a, a disambiguation. When I say something like craft, what does that mean to you? Well, I mean, I think like many people, a, a go-to in my, in my brain my, my most basic brain, you know, you think crafts or crafting, but then that leads you to handwork, something with your hands. And yeah. I'm a photographer. So, you know, yes, I'm holding the camera with my hand. And if I'm making analog prints, I'm in the dark room, agitating prints, agitating the film, you know, handling it. Yeah. But, you know, it's not a craft in the same sense that a sculptor or a painter is using their hands. So, Craft for me as a photographer has to do with, you know, the way I move through the world, seeing things that I want to point out and make meaning out of, transform somehow using the camera and the translation from the world into a 2D space, whether it's screen based or a print, black and white or color on the wall or in a book small or big scale, et cetera. Yeah. So, so craft for me is, is, you know, my practice is maybe a similar word. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I like that. And I, I like how you're landing it in a space that feels like for you and particularly for such a visual craft, such a visual practice, it's almost like a lens that you bring to the world right. around you. It's like the, the frame of craft. And even if you never actually use that word, right. I think we're probably talking about the exactly. same things. It's, it's perhaps easier. I, I come more from the writing direction. So it's sort of that metaphor is already in place. The idea of craft as being something intangible, but something that you're, you're still working in material, like something like that. So how happy or frightening is a term like career? When we, we it, uh, it can it can be all over the board and everyone's a little bit different and it's 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 not necessarily even specific to you know the industry or practice but when I say career what bubbles to the surface so similarly to the word craft I mean I hear career and being a child of the eighties I think white collar Wall Street I think career women in in suits with skirts you know but then I pause and I apply that to my life and I certainly have. <laughs> A career, if not, if not two overlapping careers, you know, there's the academic right, yeah. side as well as the side as a photographer. And the career part of it is is really important because I don't know. I mean, in a way, I feel like I spend I don't want to send, say I spend more time on my career than on my craft, but sometimes it feels that way. And the career part of it is getting your work out there, 
getting it seen, getting it shown, getting it published, you know, following up with invoices. I know people who kind of make their work in a vacuum and showing it and putting it out there is less important to them. But I just, I'm not that way. I think if you're an artist, part of the whole point is that you have something to say and share and that other people need to see it to complete that circle. So, so the career part of it is really just like support for the work, support in getting it out there so that, you know, the work has a life and it can be a little tedious. And some of that is about making connections and keeping up with people that you haven't seen in a while. And when I lived in New York City, you would bump into someone at an opening and then they would remember you exist. And then next thing you know, you're in a show that they're curating. But, you know, lucky for me here in New Haven, there's still a certain amount of that bumping into people because we bring people here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yale is a hotbed in, in, in so many ways in terms of attracting the talents and, and the networking can still happen in, in annex. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. I really love that you took this in the direction of the fundamental part of almost like the nuts and bolts parts of, a, of, a, of an artistic pathway. And then, you know, you also mentioned the split, right? So there's also your, you're a professor and an administrator and, and, and you've got a nine to five job, right? With like the benefits and those sorts of things. And that's just another path in this, but it's, it's all interrelated related. It's not like you're living multiple lives. Like they all have to fit together. Right. And you know, the academic side of it, there is a craft to teaching and there is a craft even to keeping your teaching practice and your art practice intertwined somehow. There's craft also merging that with your life, which for me also includes being a parent. So craft comes into it in many, you know, from many angles. That's a great point. Yeah, no, I I love that. So when we're thinking of the generative, the creative, we'll use the term craft, but like it means all those sorts of things. And when we're mixing that in with the more logisticals and, and administrative sort of features involved in this, what is it about the craft that keeps you coming back? How do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep yourself, you know, it might not be living two lives, but often it will feel like, you know, putting two outfits on like two different things. What does that look like? And how does it feel to sort of keep yourself activated and ready when you need to be ready in a creative space? No, that's a great question because I keep coming back to it because I have to, you know, I said to my students the other day, I said, don't do this with your life unless you have to do it. Unless making art, making photography, taking pictures is like breathing to you. You know, you need to do it to Mm. survive. There's some part of you that feels compelled or obsessed. But how do you find the time when you have a full-time job, when you're a parent, when, you know, the grass needs to be cut and the trees (laughs) need to be pruned, all of that. So carving out the time is hard. And actually, I feel like I've been doing this for a while and I'm in my late 40s and I feel like there's something that finally clicked for me. And I think it was a year or two ago on Zoom, there was a talk related to women in the photography program at Yale. And they were talking about balance and how they learned that you have to merge the different aspects of your life. Because if you don't, you're always going to be fighting with yourself. And I feel like I've been fighting with myself for 20 years, trying to let career stuff overtake family life or home life or social life. And then, you know, the academic life overtaking my creative life. So there's something where I'm really trying to 
accept and like admit parts of my life into my work. And maybe you've, you know, you, you look at my work yeah. and you say, well, Lisa, you've done that in the past, like with the junkyard project of being about my family, but it yeah. was, uh-huh. you know, I had some distance from it and it was about my history, family history, not so much my family present. Right. So there's that. And then also I think another way I've been fighting with myself is feeling like I never have time. I never have enough time. And then when my daughter started going to school, I'm like, okay, now I've got six hours. Well, every day it's like, (laughs) where did those six hours go? And so I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. You're not going to have a valuable use of your time unless you're making work for six hours. Well, for me, it doesn't work that way. And actually, um, I had a former student come give a talk to my current students last year and She gave us a pep talk, myself included. And she said, you know, you don't need to work for eight hours a day. You could work for one hour a day. And that one hour could be the most productive hour anyone's ever had. And once I tried that, I couldn't believe it. I I mean, I feel like so much for me has changed. And yesterday I worked on a book project for, you know, an hour or two and it felt great. And I feel like I got a lot done. My whole life needs to sort of take place in these six hours I might have free a few days a week. But it includes Yale and the Mm -hmm. emails and it includes prepping for class and it includes working on my work. And like I was thinking maybe Thursday I might make some cyanotypes, which I've been meaning to do. And if it's sunny, I can Mm -hmm. do it. It's not happening today. (laughs) That is so fantastic. I, I love the approach to that, to re- both the recognition that in what has become sort of the traditional artistic landscape, you don't have eight hours very often, not with family, not with the, the supporting jobs, not with all the things that you have going on. I really love that. I, I, I'll work with students often in, in a, a version of that conversation where we'll talk about oftentimes, as you know, like the students have their work is kind of their classroom mm-hmm. work. Right. And that's great. And that's why they're at Yale and they should be doing that. But sometimes we'll talk about the idea of taking on a side project outside of the classroom. They're required to do not for the hours that they're putting into their academics and for grade, but just to get that sense of what does it really look like to have something under the table, to have something on the nights and weekends version that they'll eventually have to be you know, navigating themselves. It's, it's a little crazy and not everyone picks it up, but like it, it's that kind of concept, right? Like that that's actually something we have to, as artists, we have to be conditioned for that. We have to understand like you can do an amazing amount of work. I'm a 5 a.m. writer before the kids get up. Like that's, that's my hour. Right. And it can be like a holy hour. You know, it can be like a really focused and, and it can also be okay if you wake up or carve out that hour and you don't get quite as much done as you thought you were going to get done, but you did it, the discipline of it. So no, I, I really appreciate that. It's a great way of sort of encapsulating something I've been thinking about myself. So what's inspiring you? So, you know, craft is usually, you know, again, it's carving out the space, but it's also like consuming. It's also bringing in, it's also visualizing. And you were talking in terms of like the craft in a sense being a frame that you carry with you creatively in everything that you do. What has been making it through the frame for you recently? Well, I mean, one thing that's fantastic about being here at Yale and and being literally like in the classroom, in the School of Art, there are visiting artists constantly. And I'm bringing my classes to them. So that is one 
of the perks of being here. Mm-hmm. I get to see new work, whether it's by emerging artists or established artists. And you never know what you're going to find when you walk in the door. So that's always wonderful, especially when someone is showing new work. So that keeps me going. And even the work of the students as well. You know, you see something that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have seen it that way or done it that way, but I appreciate it and can connect to it. But actually, I feel like I, I don't read as much as I could or should, because honestly, I read about three pages (laughs) and I start falling asleep because in bed, you know, I, I, that's when I read and lately it's just been pretty pathetic. But speaking of podcasts, actually, so there's work I've been doing that is related to loss, some deaths in my family and thinking about the things people leave behind. And so there has been work that I've been interested in and sort of sought out in that area. One of the first people that comes to mind is Joan Didion, whose work in that area has been incredibly inspiring and just a reminder that we, this is all stuff that we go through, whether it's sooner or later, repeatedly, or just a few transition type moments in life. But on Instagram, which I I can't believe I am citing Instagram as a place of inspiration, but there's a (laughs) photographer and editor, curator named Marvin Hefferman, whose partner was lost in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the very beginning. And so his Instagram has been basically a morning diary, starting with, you know, it happening. And then, you know, now we're two years out and still see the daily grieving. And then more recently, bringing it back to the podcast, Anderson Cooper has started this podcast about losing his mother and years before his brother. And then he talks to people like Stephen Colbert in the second episode talking about loss. But then you also have him recording while he's going through his mother's things. And one of the things I've been working Mm -hmm. on has been looking over here right now and there's stacks of of my grandmother and my father's things here, kind of like in purgatory, perhaps, you know, trying to figure out what to do with all of this stuff creatively. <laughs> so having this on Instagram and podcasts and books, it's just been great to kind of keep having these reminders that this thing I'm doing does have relevance to other people. And it's not just my story and that, you know, my story hopefully right. will connect yeah. to other people and help them in the same way that these things I've cited have helped me. Yeah. Well, how enriching too. I mean, that's- that's another example of what's inspiring you. Yeah. It's cross media, right? It's coming from every direction. And, and, and it goes back to what you were saying before about that it's a lens you carry with you. So you could be listening to a podcast or reading a book or watching, you know, some, whatever it might happen to be. And you find it through that lens because it's what you bring as your curiosity and your interest. It's a really great note for artists in general. I think we do it naturally, but we don't always think about it the right way. And we sometimes, I'll put myself in this box, sometimes we don't realize that the things that are actually artistic practice are taking in someone else's work as long as we're lensing it in in that creative sort of, you know, analytical way. Like a whale or a basking shark, you know, you're just always swimming around, (laughs) moving through the world with, you know, your eyes open, your mouth open, trying to just take it all in. 
And that makes it so much more approachable in terms of, you know, when you can find the one hour of focused generative, but then you have another three or four hours during the day where you're actually able to read something or watch something or be part of a podcast or whatever it happens to be. That's how it adds up. And in a lot of ways, that's a lot more productive than worrying over not having enough time yeah, to actually be yeah. generating, right? So you've said a few different things that I think importantly track back to the idea of community. You talked about New Haven being close enough and sort of bringing people to. You've got Yale, which, you know, with its history and tradition and alumni and those sorts of things, you have your own practice in different parts of the country that, you know, you, you've been drawn to and connected with. Tell me a little bit more about both the importance of that community and how did you how did you get it started? Because I think, you know, a lot of our listeners, a lot of our students would really be interested in maybe some, some, some tips in those directions. As far as community, I feel like I have a built-in family here at Yale and that family, they're all the, the aunties and uncles and grandparents that were, you know, mentors <laughs> and faculty and former students. But then it's constantly being added to with new new cousins and new new children, if you will. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I feel very lucky and that in many ways I don't have to seek out and kind of create crit groups. And I don't feel like I have to go to openings because it's all part of my work life is this very social aspect that's yeah. all centered around photography. So that said, you know, I think a lot of people who aren't in such a intense academic situation at work, you know, or maybe they're adjunct and they're only teaching once a week. I, I found that other people I've gone to school with and certainly younger alumni will form crit groups and they'll form collectives and they'll open a gallery or, you know, open some kind of space or curate shows and, and like really actively generating and creating community. So in a way, for me, I already kind of mentioned those couple lectures where somebody said something and that clicked for me. And so for me, going to these lectures mm -hmm. or sitting in on them or zooming in, you know, it might be a kind of distant audience based kind of community, but but I'm still sort of taking it in and making connections. But actually, one ex example of a time recently where I reached out was I also teach in the Hartford photo MFA one week every summer. And so, you know, it's amazing how quickly that year goes by and we all kind of come back together again. And, and a lot of those people are Yale alumni as well. I'm a little bit of a lone wolf, I think. I, I know I said I was a whale earlier. Now I'm a lone wolf. But, you know, I do work in solitude a lot and I don't really ask for anyone's opinion or anyone's feedback. But this one book project that I mentioned to you earlier, I made a big push to get it on paper and make a book dummy. And and I brought it with me to Hartford and I asked everyone ahead of time, all the other faculty, some of whom teach photo bookmaking class. So I know they know their stuff. And it was really great to sit down with them, sometimes one on one, but then sometimes the only time anyone had was all at the same time. So then there'd be a group of people looking at the book at the same time. And I don't know, I just felt like that was great that I've got this community that I work with and we all do the same thing. So we all have this language that we understand. And you know, I don't ask anything of them, but I would certainly look at their work mm. if they asked me. But like the one one time in, you know, seven years together where I'm saying, hey, you guys, I, I need some help. I need some advice and was able to sit down. And it was just really wonderful to have that time with them and have them sharing their feelings and advice for my own work when we're always talking about the students' work. Right. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that you lead your concept of community with project. 
right, with, with work. Sometimes it can feel with students, we start using words like networking and that sort of thing. And it brings up, you know, this negativity or this forest or this artifice, but we're constantly talking in terms of no, 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 the organics of relationship building and the concept of being able to build those relationships around work, around project, around, hey, this is something that's inspiring and collaborative and reach out and connect with some people who might be doing some similar things. I like that. Like it helps to condition that is to be, mm-hmm. to be not artifice, but rather to be a natural sense of connecting with, with similarly minded creatives. So that's, I think that's helpful. Yeah. And, you know, I think in my twenties earlier on, it was much more urgent and maybe, you know, to some degree, you know, it, it was calculated like, oh, I've got to go to this opening and so-and-so is going to be there. We're back to the logistics, right? The, the big C career side exactly, does exist. Exactly. Yeah. But I think, you know, in a way I have the luxury or the privilege now of having some success behind me where mm-hmm. I, I, I know what that feels like and it feels good, but like it's not the end all be all, you know, there's all this other stuff with family life and just living your life that you realize is as important, if not more important. And so it's all less urgent now. So that organicness of like, whether I get into this show or meet that person, it's just, you know, I leave it up to the universe a little bit, but I am open and I am putting myself out there. I'm just not doing it any way where I would call it networking or schmoozing or anything like that. But I think, <laughs> you know, maybe in the beginning. But there, there's a season for yeah, that too. Yeah, in the beginning, yeah, certainly. You've got to do a certain <laughs> amount of that. Put, your out, put yourself out there even more. Right. I think if the right instinct is in place, then even the more logistical side of contacts yeah. are needed, referrals are needed, you know, showing up and, and doing the, whether you feel like schmoozing or not, like making the connections and making the relationships is all, it's part of it, particularly in that early phase. But if you bring that genuineness, right? Like that you're, you're working on something and you're interested yeah. in what someone else is working on. And you're, and that's where you, you're, you're landing in that, that line that shared that can be drawn between two creatives. I feel like the networking gets the bad rap because it drops that authenticity, which is actually what it's all about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, from my perspective, I feel like it's just, it's not worth it to push something. <laughs> it's not worth it unless it is organic yeah. and real and comes out of a real relationship. And I'll, I would just add now that I've been around doing this for a while and I look back and I even think about these book projects I have now, I'm working with people who I've known forever and we all came up together. And, you know, maybe I met this person 20 years ago and this person 10 and this person five years ago, but there's a consistency and a continuity and you build relationships and you have trust. And maybe a piece of advice might be, you know, don't always go sky high and try to meet the superstar and think that like they're going to help you. Actually, your friend that graduated last year or your sweet mate or whoever, they're going to have the publishing company or they're going to be the graphic designer that's going to do your book. And they're, they're sure. going to be the curator at the museum. And that might be hard to see when you're 20, but when you're in your forties, yeah. it's like happening all around you. Right. Right. So let's take a look back at 20 years yeah. ago when these things looked a little bit different from, from your perspective, an artist and an early artist, oftentimes the easy part actually is, is the passion and the craft and, and, and going to the table and doing the work. And the hard part 
is reframing and being willing to let in this this other part. When was it early on that you first identified and and sort of dealt with or wrestled with this idea of if I want to do this professionally, here are some things I'm going to have to keep in mind. So when did the career, big C career, when did it first enter the fray and, and how did you make either the right or, or, or the right kinds of decisions that would set you, you know, down the paths you could follow? I think I was pretty naive looking back now about like what the life of a photographer might look like, what mm. would be required. But maybe that's a good thing because I just discovered this thing that I love to do. And I always did it. I took pictures when I was a kid and when I was a teenager and I thought I would be a writer. And I think that I thought that because I was told I was good at it, but also I think Mm -hmm. my mom wanted me to be a writer. (laughs) She wanted to be a writer, which now she's finally, she finally got her first published gig in the uh, Jersey Shore magazine, which is awesome. And there there's more to come. So that's great. But I always did photography, but it wasn't something that I saw as a career because, you know, who I don't want to be a wedding photographer or, or school pictures photographer. Mm. Like that's what photography was to me. I didn't know as far as a career. But I went into college starting with writing. I doubled and then kind of switched over to photo. And I don't know, you know, I think it's just, I love doing it and everybody was moving to New York and that's what you did when you graduated. And we just kind of made our way and I was able to kind of learn the business through jobs. So working in a magazine or working at a photo lab or assisting a photographer or many photographers, this is what a career in photography is like for an artist or for a wedding photographer or for a fashion photographer. Mm -hmm. But I just sort of followed my nose and found these tertiary, you know, these, these gigs that were adjacent or supportive of the photo world or of photographers um, in order to learn the business, mainly to pay my rent, but luckily <laughs> learn the business at the same time. Were you able to to sort of string together enough of the, the tertiaries in order to sort of make photography both the practice and the profession? Or along the way, did it require sort of that other track or the other piece that would help pay the bills and, and might even be farther than tertiary? Like, what did that look like? Were there, were there other options in there? Were there other paths that you sort of had to dabble in? When I moved to New York after undergrad, I intended to wait tables and then I couldn't get a job. I don't know if they still do this, but they would take your picture and it all felt very yucky to me. And then I think I was offered a job at a very fancy, nice restaurant, but they said to me that I was overqualified. So I didn't do it. Who knows what might've happened if I had gone that path, but I cobbled together all these things that were, they were in photography. I mean, I don't think after graduating, I had any job that was not related. I worked at the New York City archives, printing photographs from historical archives and the famous tax photographs where they had photographed every building in New York City for tax purposes. And it was amazing because there's a record of every building in New York from the (laughs) 40s and from the 60s. So yeah, I don't know if I'm answering the question, but I cobbled it together. No, no, that's good. And then slowly just started, instead of being the assistant, I started getting my own gigs. And then, you know, graduate school is a big, you know, two year chunk of time in there that really changed things a lot, enabled my work to get better and to change, but kind of created a new group of connections, a new community for me to be a part of. And to be honest, having Mm -hmm. the stamp of approval that you've gone to Yale It opens doors, whether those doors are being opened because it's 
alumni sure. and they're part of the community opening their door to you. But also I think it helps, I don't know, maybe it helps people who can't think for themselves <laughs> as much know that you must be good. <laughs> well, it's interesting too, because there's a lot of split between like bigger, like media industry, entertainment industry, you know, visual arts and culture. Oftentimes it's such a churn industry, like things are fast paced, decisions have to be made. And what I've found oftentimes is what Yale can do is it provides, you know, a bona fide that doesn't have to be tracked to take that extra time to figure out, wait, what about their background, that, that sort of thing. And, and if that's, I think it does many other things, but if that's the one thing it does, that that in and of itself is something, right? Where the resume says Yale and all of a sudden there's some assumptions being made, yeah. sometimes appropriately, maybe sometimes inappropriately, but there are assumptions being made that, that can be helpful. And particularly for right. these industries where there's not a lot of time to do the, the you know, the, the legwork of like chasing down, is this the right, right. person to hire? Yeah. Um, that can be the difference. Pretty blessed that we can put Yale on the on the resumes. <laughs> and to not be cynical about it, it really did a huge service to my work. If you know anything about Yale, whether it's undergrad or grad, you know, there's this intense period of work where you're going to really learn something and be challenged and challenge yourself. You don't have to do all that research wondering, you know, is this person committed? You just know that there's a certain level of thought and concern and care put into the work. Yeah. There's, there has been an investment. <laughs> there has been a meaningful investment. <laughs> so let's fast forward back to, you know, more recently. So what does a, a day look like for you now? And we talked about breaking it down and there's a lot of different things at work. There's a lot of different responsibilities, different prioritizing that's going on, but what does a traditional day look like trying to sort of feed all the different, um, you know, creatures that need fed? Well, I mean, there isn't like a typical, typical day, but I am on campus two or three days a week. But when I'm off campus, there are days when I can't get away from my computer because the emails are coming in constantly. And right now, even I'm ignoring them. So, <laughs> you know, being an administrator in an academic institution, there's a lot. And when it rains, mm -hmm. it pours. And I love how on Fridays, the emails are few and far between. And lunch hour is another good time to not be disturbed because they're not coming in, right. <laughs> you know, but on the days I'm not at school, the days that I'm home weekdays, you know, I might wake up in time to just get our daughter, you know, together and walk her to school. We could buy ourselves mm -hmm. more time if she took the bus. But, you know, there's something nice about living close enough to walk. Plus, I need the exercise. Yeah. And you never know what you're going to see on the way. So, you know, you've always got the phone yeah. camera in your pocket. And you've got that frame you're carrying around with exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> but I don't get upset if I wake up really early. You mentioned that the the magic hour. So if yeah. I happen to be up at five, you know, if I'm up before dawn, and I'm like, oh, you know, I could do this. I could, you know, so I, I might get up and have that hour, hour and a half or two to myself and get some things done. Mm -hmm. But there's a certain number of things around the house that need to be done and organizing and like little things that take up so much time, you know, making appointments yeah. and making plans <laughs> and all that. Right. They, they seem small, but they get pretty yeah. big, pretty yeah. quick. <laughs> but I will be trying to spend some time on the career aspect. Um, I spent a lot of time over the past few years. I've kind of taken a break, but I have a lot of inventory. So I put out offers to a lot of museums to donate work, which is oh, wow. a good thing to do. But it also, mm -hmm. you know, has been a good thing for my career in that, okay, I'm in these collections now. 
And they don't always say yes. Offering someone something mm-hmm. doesn't mean they want it. <laughs> but some of those pieces have then been in shows. So that's been fantastic. Wow. But there's a fair amount of paperwork involved in donating a piece of artwork to a museum and like legwork. I've got to go find the piece. Is it dinged? Do I need mm. to reprint it? Does it have dust spots on it? Oh, it's not where mm. I thought it was. And you, know, you go through finding the edition <laughs> number. So, and especially if you're donating a, a large chunk, if you're donating 10 prints, that's 10 times the work. Legwork. Yeah. I'll try to sit down and edit pictures, organize them. I've got a bunch of pictures on my desktop that I need to go through. Yesterday, I started filing a huge stack of paper that has literally been sitting under my desk since we moved in. So we moved in about eight years ago. So I have an eight-year pile of stuff to file. And as I'm going through it, I'm finding all this great stuff that I'd forgotten about, you know, shows I've been in, notes from people. I have a Yale pile. So I'm seeing my lists of my former students going down memory lane. But, you know, I actually, I I did this, your question as an exercise. A few years ago, I was asked to be in a book. There was an artist who did a project called Artist Residency in Motherhood. And it was all about Mm. if you have a child, now you can't take off for three months and go to a residency. And there are family-friendly residencies, but they're incredibly competitive. And then also, Mm. if you layer on top of that, that I have an academic job for nine months of the year. And I can't just up and go if you don't get sabbaticals. So she had all of the participants, mothers of young children, just write down everything we did in the day. And if you just Google artist residency and motherhood, it'll come up. And it's this very thick book. And, you know, it's amazing how, you know, there's so many intersections between different Mm -hmm. artists, mothers lives, but there's also such a variety in what we have to do to feed all of the animals, basically. Right. But then also to try to squeeze in time for ourselves that's art practice, as well as time for ourselves that's nourishing and not creating. But I try to plow through the emails. Hopefully they don't keep coming in. I might try to photograph something if there's something sitting there that I want to shoot a Thursday. I'll try to make some cyanotypes, maybe eat lunch, do some laundry, pull some weeds, (laughs) you know, clean something up. You know, there's a lot of that. And it sounds like leaving a lot of room for flexibility too in in the midst of this. Yeah. One of us picks our daughter up at 320. So from nine to 310, 315, that's that's all that time. And I sort of will continue whatever is left over before making dinner. But really then until she is in bed, there isn't really that much I can do that isn't about her. And then there's this period where people will receive emails from me between (laughs) eight and nine or 9.30 before I have my like one hour of television. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm being too vague, but it really, it really just depends. And there's really a lot less sure, yeah. of the creative part than I would like. I think that's that's pretty, that, that almost feels standard, right? Like we're always going to feel in terms of the spaces, but that that's why, like when you started us in that place of, you know what, like I don't have to have eight hours to make this thing happen. That's just such a, a load lifter, you know, like that's such a, like, and it's true. And I know it's true too. And I, I you know, I, I feel the same way, but it takes so much pressure off of a schedule 
when you feel like, actually, if I just have an hour and a half here, 90 minutes, 60 minutes, like that, there's something really, really potent that I could be, you know, worked on. Carrying that forward, I think is extremely important because schedules have to be so flexible. And in this world, particularly when you're mixing things together, like administrative duties and emails and laundry, and then also the practice in, in that, you've got to keep it open. You've got to keep it adaptable and, and but still creative. And that's that's the hard part. But it's, it sounds like you've been able to squeeze the right ways. And, you know, flexibility is really important, especially these days. I mean, being able to pivot to Zoom and being mm, able to yeah. juggle homeschooling and then teaching from home. Now any sniffle becomes a big deal, yeah. you know, and when you're a yep, parent, yep. you also have to be prepared. Okay. If my kid gets sick, I might lose this week, right? I'll, I'll get to right. be with them and we can like, you know, snuggle up and watch right. videos, but I might lose that six hours a day for however many days. But also, yeah. you know, speaking of schedules, I think deadlines are important, or at least they're important mm. to me, because when you're in school, you have deadlines, you have a, an exam, you have papers due, you have a critique once a month, or, you know, you have final reviews. Okay. When you're left to your own devices, Unless you have a show or a book or, you know, some kind of a publication deadline, if somebody doesn't need something from you a certain time, it's up to you. It will drift. So I have to say <laughs> that lately deadlines have been my friend. And so, for mm. example, the, the book project about the things people leave behind, I raced to get that book dummy together in time for August 10th or whatever the date was to show it to my colleagues in Hartford. And I actually mm. was sitting on the bed in the hotel that night <laughs> and then the morning of when I said I was showing to them. So I can get a lot done and make a lot of progress and come up with a pretty great product. <laughs> if right, I sit right. down and do it, it's just that I have to force myself to do it. And then yeah. another book project that I'm working on, I have a friend who has now has a photo book publishing company. And she said, I'm going to be in New York in October. And I said, can you come up to New Haven? And so now we've got a date and we're going to do this thing. You know, we're going to put this book dummy together and I think she's going to take it with her. And then Hopefully next thing you know, that artist book will be announced. But without her coming and us sitting down and doing it, it just drags on. And next thing you know, a year has gone by and then another year. Yeah, I love too how that's laying right next to the idea of, of collaborative, even even as you, know, you, you mentioned sort of like a lone wolf and doing your own thing. But on occasion, that collaboration, that bringing someone into the fold, even conversationally, it doesn't even have to be a formal version, but the version that establishes a deadline, establishes a, a responsibility, you know, you know, you're beholden to someone else's time, someone else's interest. That's such a great way also to kind of reframe how something that can be so siloed can actually like stitch together and become like a for formal deadline that can help push a project exactly. forward. Okay, so uh, this has been a fantastic start to our conversation. Let's go ahead and put a pin in it for now. Um, and I'll look forward to coming back around and I'll probably dig a little bit deeper. I'd love to get uh, even more of your advice, particularly for our younger artists out there. But Lisa, thank you so much for coming in and, and, and participating in the, the first half of our conversation. And I'll look forward to coming back around. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks again, Lisa. We can't wait to pick this up with you for next week. Until then, for all of our creative listeners, don't be afraid to use the word career and always stay crafty. Stay crafty.